we're going to continue today with our series called Resolute. What we're talking about all through January is the season of resolution and the season of uh, resolve is trying to find faith that finishes. And we're doing that in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is uh, this, this season uh, where the writer is addressing the people, the Hebrew people, who are experiencing great unrest. They're, they're trying to walk this faith journey, but there's unrest along the way, and they're this kind of urban, angsty people. And, and so what we've been doing is just kind of walking through Hebrews 12, really, and seeing what are uh, the parameters, what are, what's the advice to finish well, to run the race well. And so we're going to continue to do that today, uh, talking about overcoming rebellion, we talked about how to have endurance, and we talked about discipline and what that really means, that God is for our flourishing. Today, we talk about rebellion, and we have a lot to get to, so I'm just going to get uh, right into it. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12. Scripture says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And so what we learned last week, we said this last week, we'll say it again this week, anytime we start a scripture in here with the word therefore, we ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? It's referring backwards to something that we've already talked about. And so what this is building on is the two layers of foundation we've already walked through in the last two weeks, which is this idea of endurance, of, of refusing to budge off what we know to be right, and, and discipline, uh, of being trained into a place of flourishing even when it doesn't feel good, walking through the struggle. And so what, what we're building on is these two ideas, and the writer begins to sort of identify the dangers along the path. Hey, if you're going to have endurance, if you're going to flourish, you're going to run into some of this stuff. And what we see is, is there's this idea of kind of strive for peace with everyone. There's a relational unresolved thing happening. And then this root of bitterness we see, and then he, he explains Esau, and, and really what he's talking about is sin. It's just doing the opposite of what God would have us do. And so what this does, and we'll read one more, is it echoes an earlier exhortation in the book of Hebrews. So we go back to chapter 3, and I'll read that for you here, 3 verse 12. There the writer says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. And that's a, that's a quote. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. That's from Psalm 95. And what that is, is a reference back to uh, the time when the people of Israel were in the desert. They had been freed from slavery in Egypt, and they had crossed the Red Sea through God's kind of miraculous conviction. I mean, miraculous uh, provision. And what they find themselves on the other side of the Red Sea is they begin to be attacked by sin and bitterness. It reminds them in this moment, they were in the wilderness, and they began to distrust God himself. They found themselves in the midst of rebellion. When you and I rebel against God, it's the same as that picture of the Israelites that you can read in the book of Exodus. Because one of three things is true. When we find ourselves in rebellion, we are either rebelling against motive, method, or mission. We're rebelling against motive, method, or mission. The Israelites, when, when they were wandering in the desert, 
they found themselves questioning God's motive. Did you bring us out here to die? They would ask Moses. What was the point of this? What's your motive, Moses? They would question method. Why did you bring us this way? They took a really weird route to get from here to here. They went there. And so they said, why would we go this way? What are you doing? And then third, they would consistently question the mission. Because you would hear them say things like, we would rather be slaves and have meat than be here. Which is to say, we would rather still be comfortable, we would rather still be fed, we would rather still be about ourselves than on this great mission that's about something bigger than us. And so we start with motive. Rebellion distrusts the why, the motive. Um, Anybody in here brave enough to admit to occasionally texting and driving? I find myself at times still with, uh, and my kids, they always get me because my kids will be like, dad, how are you driving without holding the steering wheel? And I'm doing that thing where my knee is driving with the wheel and I'm, and I'm like, oh gosh, this is not good. Like there are laws against this. It is insanely dangerous, not just for you, but for anybody who may be around you. You can't do two things at once. There's a reason that this is becoming outlawed everywhere. Texting and driving is really not good. And yet, we still do it. We're rebellious. Like, like we don't trust the motive, maybe? Like it keeps people safe, or this is for your own safety. And somewhere in my soul, maybe I'm, maybe I'm rebellious of that. Maybe I, don't, maybe I don't trust the government, right? People are like, well, the government's not going to tell me what to do. I'll text and eat a Big Mac and do whatever I want while driving. I don't care. And what happens is when we, when we don't trust the motive of God— what we end up doing is making our agenda bigger than his agenda. That our priority comes before his priority. We become like teenagers versus parents. Who the parents have very well-reasoned motive as to why they say do this, and the teenager says, they don't know anything. And then when they're having their own teenagers, they'll be like, gosh, I should have listened to my parents more. And then their teenagers will tell them, you don't know anything. It's the circle of life. We rebel reflexively, typically if things aren't our idea. And the reason for that is we don't understand the why behind stuff. We rebel uh, of the method. Rebels distrust how things are to be done. So we have to understand, sometimes we, we get the why, but we don't like the how. If you've ever put together Ikea furniture, 36-page manual, no words, and an Allen wrench. And some people in here are like, you know what, I'm just not doing that. And they get out... Uh, power drill, and they're just putting stuff together left and right, and then we're all shocked six months later when it falls apart, and we're like, well, Ikea furniture's cheap. And you're like, or you didn't follow the directions, right? Same thing is true with uh, directions, driving directions. The idea that we think we know better, that I know how to do it better than someone else. I know how to do it better than the expert. I know how to do it better than God. When I would was picking up my family for the very first time here. I had been living here for three or four days, and uh, the girls were flying out. And so they, uh, my children had never seen this place. And I'm all excited because we kind of made a decision to move 1,400 miles. And they'd never seen it. My wife's excited, and it's our big day, and they're flying in. And so I get in the car, and I'm driving up to Detroit to pick them up. And the, the, the Google map that I was probably reading and texting while driving. The Google map says, you need to go through downtown Toledo in order to get to the airport. And I was like, this dumb thing. Why would I get off the highway? 
what a, what a silly idea. And so I smartly, right, ignored the Google map with its silly detour. And I spent 45 minutes on I-75 during that season when uh, they basically shut it down. And it forced me over to 280. And then I had to do a big loop around. And I just sat there. And I found myself, once you were in it, you can't get out, really mad at myself. Like, why did I think I was so smart? I've never made this drive before. And yet I thought I had it. I distrusted the how of an expert, and it bit me. My, ga- my dad, when he was uh, teenage years, at one of his first jobs, he was putting uh, nose cones together for bombs for Vietnam. Imagine his ego being bigger than the expertise in that moment, and the danger inherent in that. Over and over, we find ourselves rebelling against the how, the, the method. God, you want to do it that way? Why? I'll do it my own way. And we run into trouble and we're shocked. Motive and method both kind of combine to form this third, more murky thing, this kind of sneaky thing called mission. Mission, we really only know whether we're on it or not after the fact. Mission is kind of a diagnostic for us. Like, like mission asks the question, who do I really worship? Our mission is to know Jesus and make him known. Like we're a church that's committed to that mission. And when we join the church, we, we join that mission. We get excited about that mission. And at times, we will find ourselves uh, running into change, running into struggle, running into resistance. And it's then that we can do a diagnostic. I- anywhere in life, you run into change, to struggle, to resistance. You can actually step back and go, wait, 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 who do I worship in this? So for us, we're a church committed to doing whatever it takes to see that through. Difficult things, uncomfortable things, sacrificial things to see it get accomplished. And for 47 years, that's been happening. Like there's an incredible legacy built here over a church that, whether this was the exact articulated mission for all 47 years, it wasn't. This is what's been happening. And through it, so much ministry has been done. Lives have been changed. People have been transformed. And yet every time we see change, every time we see shifting, we have an opportunity again to reset mission. You join a community group and give up your time and drive to someone else's house and be uncomfortable with people you don't know real well to take on part of the mission. You serve the city in ways that you're not sure you know what you're doing even, but you do it and you just see what happens and and you take it on mission that way. You give those black boxes against the wall every week. There's money in them. You give generously towards this mission, towards seeing ministry done in the city. As we grow fuller, every Sunday, and as we keep account and we're keeping track, as we go fuller, something that's going to happen around here eventually, probably, is the second service. And I don't know about you, but change is hard. You think about change, and, and if you've been here for 47 years, you go, well, we've only had one service for 47 years. When I, when I talk to people about this, like, we're going to have two services on Easter, because if everybody showed up at once today, we'd be in big trouble. And so we're grateful that the Armentanos have the flu, even though we're sad that they have the flu. We're kind of grateful. Because <laughs> like half of them, which is a lot of people, aren't here. And the Mizieskis who sit here, they're not here. And so I can start pointing out like, well, these 37 people aren't here today. And if they were, half of them would stand. And so we know on Easter we're going to have two services. But then beyond that, I, I mention it to people. I go, gosh, it looks like we're really heading towards having to have a second service. And I see it, even subconsciously, people wince. Oh, I don't want that. And I get it. People say, I just want to be able to come to church once as a whole family 
and just know everybody in the room. That's, what I, that's really what I want. And I don't want two services because then I'm, I don't even know who's in the other one. People say, I like that we're all one big family together. This, this feels like family. What a, you can't start splitting it up. I get it. The first thing I'd respond to that is it's not about knowing everyone. We already don't. If we're honest and we did it, we lined everybody up, up against the wall, we'd probably know about half the people in the room. We already don't know everybody. So it's not about knowing everybody. It's about giving everyone a chance to be truly known. Like, what do people yearn for in our culture? To be known. You look at research and you look at people who've done studies and they, the number of actual, real, true friends that, that people have today is astonishingly low. People who actually know you. We want people to find that here. So we would say it's about making sure everyone is known. And what makes us a family is, is our shared commitment to the mission. It's not the arbitrary position of the hands on your watch when the music starts. Well, 10 a.m. is when we're at church. Well, one day we might be at 9 a.m. at church and at 10.30 at church, and, and who knows from there. But the idea is if we're about mission, that, that excites us even though the change might be hard. The diagnostic for us, the hard thing for us, is that it forces us to do some soul work and go, hey, how much of this resistance to change like that, a great change, too many people are coming to hear about Jesus. Ugh. What if our response to that is, is disappointment? That's a diagnostic that tells us something in me still worships self. Something in me still worships comfort. Something in me still worships familiarity and, and what I like. And so what happens is once we see that, we have to then begin to resist that selfishness. We have to begin to, to work for upheaval of that. If we're about mission, we'll figure out new ways to make new faces family, no matter the hour. And I say all that because as I was thinking through how that's a thing that's coming on our horizon as a church, we walk through that. This is not something new that I go, well, they're going to have to get used to it. I've never felt it, but I'm sure they'll be fine. This is us. It was that same trip to the airport that saw my family move 1,400 miles. Like, like we had life figured out. We had great schools and great friends. Our family was close. Everything was there. We were comfortable. We were familiar. We were known. We were loved. We were all warm and fuzzy all winter. And we moved. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't like I looked at Steph and I was like, hey, Ohio sounds cool. And she goes, let's go. And she starts packing. She goes, can you imagine? That's a long way. What do the flights cost? How does this work? How does that work? Do they have good Mexican food? What it forced us to do was ask the question, as our hearts were revealed in dealing with the change that was coming, who do we worship really? Do we worship us? Do we worship our own familiarity, our own comfort, our own fame, our own, what do we worship? Or do we worship God and what are we going to trust that this is going to work out? Spoiler alert, it's working out, okay? But we had to learn how to trust. So what we see for all of us is we all wrestle with motive, the why. We all wrestle with methods, how it's done. And we ultimately, deep down, once we do a diagnostic, all wrestle with this mission, and we all have to do the, the soul work occasionally of going, am I, am I really chasing Christ or am I, am I sort of chasing myself? 
Back in Hebrews chapter 12, the verses 14 and 15 basically say, strive for peace and eliminate the root of bitterness. So we'll take a little detour into the world of relationship. It says, strive for peace and eliminate the root of, of bitterness. Particular notice of the idea of roots, right? You've heard it said, fruits are always sourced in roots. Root leads to fruit. And so if you have the root of bitterness, what will happen naturally is you will then have the fruit of bitterness. You'll have broken relationship and broken fellowship. And so much so, I would argue that if you have brokenness in your life, you could trace it back and I bet you will find a lack of reconciliation or a root of bitterness in there somewhere. You find the tiniest crack in your life and you can almost always trace it back to some place of unreconciled relationship or bitterness. And this stuff happens. Like, this is life, and life is messy, and life is complicated. And so our job is not to be ashamed or, or, or guilted when we realize that there's still bitterness in us, and there's still resentment in us, and there's unreconciled relationship in us. Our job is to go in and be diligent and dig it out. How do we do that? One way we do it is we keep short accounts. Relationally, we keep short accounts with each other. Uh, finance people in the room would tell you that if debt builds up, debt gets progressively harder to get rid of. Right? A little bit of debt... And the interest on the debt keeps growing, and as it grows, um, your $20 pays off less and less every month. When debt grows, debt gets really difficult to manage. The same thing is true in relationship. Relational debt, when it starts to grow, becomes really difficult to manage, so much so that occasionally we have to declare relational bankruptcy. Right? And this is why like, uh, I always tell young couples when we're doing premarital counseling, I always say uh, keeping score is the most dangerous thing you can do in a marriage. Because all that's doing is, is figuring out who, who has the debt at this moment. And the reality is when couples keep score, both people are in debt. They just don't know it. Because this one knows that she did the dishes more often. And this one knows that he vacuumed more often. And, and she changed more diapers. But he picked up more from school. And they both are like, I'm, man, I'm way in the, in the black here. And she is totally in the red. And she's going, man, he is so indebted. And the debts grow and the debts grow. And then eventually they look at each other and they're like, we can't dig out of this. So to avoid relational bankruptcy, to avoid this unreconciled life, what do you do? Keep short accounts. If you're offended, you have to go deal with it. If you're wounded, you have to work it out. Is that pleasant or fun? Is it, ask a financial person in this room if it's fun to pay off debt. Anybody who's ever done it, who's been deeply in debt and has worked to pay it off, how much fun is that? None, Right? Hey, you want to go to the movies? Nope, rather pay off debt. Oh, hey, you want to go out to dinner? No, I think we're going to pay off debt tonight. Hey, what do you want to do? Anything fun? How about paying off debt? Is that fun? No. Paying off debt isn't fun. Relationally, it's not going to be fun either. If we are unreconciled, if we have debts with each other, we have to go and work those out with the expectation going in that it, it may not be the most pleasant experience, but it's the right thing to do. We brought something with us from our church in, in Texas. We always use the phrase, mind the gap. If you've ever been to London, the, the London Underground, their, their metro system, their subway, there's signs everywhere that says, mind the gap. And there's a gap, what that is, between the, the train and the platform. There's a, there's a gap. And so the signs say, mind the gap. Because what you don't want to do is not mind the gap and stick your leg in the gap because then when the train comes through, you no longer have a leg, right? So this is a minor courtesy of them to put the signs up everywhere. There's, there's a difference, though, between acknowledging the gap and addressing the gap. And this is us relationally. This is us as believers. This is us in fellowship with each other. There's a huge difference between acknowledging the gap and addressing the gap. 
To acknowledge the gap is to be waiting for the train and look at it and go, look, there's a gap. And then when the train pulls up, to put your leg in the gap and then you're stuck. Goodbye leg. To address the gap is to go, look, there's a gap. And now I have to deal with it safely so I can continue on. And that sounds overly simplistic, but that's exactly what we have to do relationally. Because we are in a passive-aggressive culture. Our passive-aggressive culture teaches us, we teach our children, shame on us, but it's true, to acknowledge things and then to move on. Rather than address things and reconcile. You see it even in little kids, right? A nine-year-old, five-year-old, my two kids. And we will force them to acknowledge, hey, you hurt your sister. Say you're sorry. I'm so sorry I hurt you. And on they go. They didn't dig anything out. They didn't rectify. They didn't reconcile. They didn't address the issue between them. They just acknowledge it. Whatever, mama needs me to acknowledge it. I'm out. And that happens all the time. It's what we do. Addressing it is different. It's different level work. People cite Matthew 18, the most cited reconciliation scripture in the Bible. The beautiful thing about Matthew 18 is it's actually followed up by uh, the parable of the unmerciful servant. I pulled one line from that parable, and it says, The servant's master took pity on him, in verse 27. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. The one who was owed the debt actually did a lot of the work in addressing the debt, interestingly enough. See, a lot of times, even as believers, we sit back and we go, Well, this person wronged me. I'll just wait for them to come and and sort it out. And our job, our responsibility as as followers of Christ is to be aggressive in addressing those things. Be aggressive in addressing the debt. Servant's master took pity on him. The phrase means his heart went out to him. And commentators would say that phrase in in the original language actually referred to um, an empathy that required the indebted to be identified with by the one who held the debt is to identify with the perpetrator. Which is a whole other level of forgiveness, which is a whole other level of reconciliation. That is not acknowledging. That is addressing. Hey, I can see how you got there. I don't like where we are right now, but I can see how you got there. And I've been there myself, and I know it's not a good feeling, and I really want to make this right. And my heart goes out to you. And I'm going to lay it out on the table, and I'm going to say, we got to get right together. Miroslav uh, Wolf says, Forgiveness flounders because I exclude myself from the enemy. I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Sit with this for a minute. This will ruin your life for a little while. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. When we lack reconciliation with others, we're holding a grudge and we're stuck in rebellion against others or against God. It is so often because we have eliminated ourselves, excluded ourselves as like-minded sinners. And when we look at a brother and sister and we say, I'm just as much a sinner as you. I fall short just as often. I'm just as broken, just as in need of grace. When we can get there, all of a sudden reconciliation begins to flourish. But it forces us to see ourselves in the community of sinners and to see our brother and our sister in the community of humans. Relational rebellion always allows for bitterness and resentment. Relational rebellion leaves us unresolved and divided. And overcoming it requires rooting out bitterness. Since we're commanded to reconcile, to not seek reconciliation is actually rebellion. 
to not seek resolution with others is rebellion against God. And so we have to understand that we're not only working on reconciliation with others, we're constantly working on reconciliation with God. Because what, what you don't hear a lot is a lot of folks are holding stuff against God. We have unconfessed resentment for the way that life turned out or this relationship unfolded. We have unconfessed resentment for the prayer that feels unanswered for how many years ago. Why do we stay unreconciled? Why do we grumble like the Israelites? Why do we stay unresolved? Is it motive? Is it method? Or is it mission? Do we distrust the why? Do we distrust the how? Or ultimately, the biggest question is, do we distrust the who? What's revealed in our refusal to address these things, what's revealed in our refusal when our rebellious hearts refuse to reconcile is revolt. Which brings up a C.S. Lewis quote. He says, a creature revolting against the creator is revolting against the source of his own powers, including even his power to revolt. It's like the scent of a flower trying to destroy the flower. This is us in relationship to God. When we're in revolt against God, we are like the scent of a flower trying to destroy the flower itself. He's essentially saying that rebellion is essentially the elevation of our agenda over the agenda of the king. It's, it's a disordered worldview. Rebellion is essentially the elevation of our agenda over the agenda of the king. And it's bathed in forgetfulness. It's bathed in forgetfulness of who we are and what the bigger story is that we've been invited into. So in verse 16, when the writer of Hebrews says we become unholy like Esau, Esau who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup, he's warning us, he's warning the Hebrews and by extension us, not to yield to temporary pleasures or temporary pressures. Because resolution... comes from seeing the bigger picture, which would mean that rebellion comes from losing sight of the big picture. Rebellion comes from losing sight of the fact that, that I'm just the scent of the flower. I'm here to serve at the pleasure of the flower itself. That I'm the created thing, not the creator. Rebellion is just losing sight of the bigger picture. You would never rationally trade your health, as we talk about resolutions, you wouldn't trade your long-term health for a bowl of midnight ice cream. Not rationally, but in the moment we lose sight of the bigger picture and we make the trade. Yeah, you know, it's just once. You would never trade your faith, your, your, your faith walk rationally for a Facebook addiction. You know, it's just one more swipe through. It's just one more scroll through. And yet more and more people I talk to say, yeah, I, don't really, I don't really feel close to God, but I know what people are doing all over the world. You would never trade rationally. You would never trade your marriage for pornography. But losing sight of the bigger picture, you would never rationally trade your job for dishonesty. You, most of the things we find ourselves in, most of the rebellion we find ourselves in is not something we would rationally choose if we had the big picture in mind. It's something we choose because we lose sight of it. So if rebellion is essentially the elevation of our agenda over the agenda of God, of the king, then it's the pursuit of that agenda of our glory, our fame, our riches, our status. It's the pursuit of that that gets us in trouble because what we end up doing is trying to redirect all of the things that are belonging to God. And we're working to see it terminate upon ourselves. 
And so where God is to get all the glory, we, we start to desire the glory for us. And we want to see the glory not terminate on him, but to terminate on me. We want to be the place where glory terminates. We want to be the place where praise terminates. We want to be the place where affection terminates. Bring it to me. And so the last point this morning is that your God is most clearly seen in the termination point of your affections. Your God is most clearly seen in the termination point of your affections. The best way I can think to illustrate this, when we lived in South Africa, uh, it's a very violent society. Uh, one of the things that's it's actually strangely common is armored car heists. And so you, you know the armored car that comes in and the guys walk out with a money bag and, and bulletproof glass and they go. And here, you just you see the guy, he like, hey, how you doing? They walk in and they go take all the money from the safe and then they walk back out, no big deal. In South Africa, it's a whole other, uh, it's just a production. You'll be grocery shopping and there'll be three guys with fully automatic weapons come in and take up positions around the store. And if, if you know anything, you learn really quickly, do not make eye contact with them unless you want to have the gun pointed at you. And, and really, just stop doing whatever you're doing. And so we would be shopping, and they'd come through, and you literally just stop, and you wait. And you see them do their thing, and there's a team. It's like a, a team, a SWAT team almost, of money grabbers to go and get what they need. They take it back out. There's two guys with automatic weapons waiting outside the back of the truck. They're all on radios. They're talking to each other. They get in. They lock the door. They speed off. And all the time, they're then getting uh, hijacked. So then there's three cars on the highway and they're all coordinated and one runs into the back as the other one pumps into the front and then the third one is the getaway car and they have explosive devices and grenades. And you can go on YouTube and you can see armored car heist. And if you type that in, armored car heist South Africa, you can see videos of armored cars exploding. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's everywhere. And what it does is it steals the peace of the general people. What you see is what's happening is the rightful destination of the, the money has been has been interrupted. The money is supposed to go from the store to the bank. And, and the heist, the hijacking, actually interrupts the rightful destination. It, it changes that, that math. And that just disrupts the peace. And so now every time you're shopping and you see that thing pull up, you get a little anxious and everybody stops. And now when you're on the highway and you see an armored car somewhere near you, you get as far away as possible so you're not part of the shrapnel when they blow it up. And your general peace is just distorted. Our revolt does the same thing. Not only is there carnage in the moment, but it steals our peace at large. Steals, when, we, when we steal glory from its rightful destination, we're no different. We're stealing the peace from our larger life. When we hijack that which is, is designed to be in transit to God. And that's hard to, to di- diagnose. It's hard to kind of step back and see where that's happening, but it's happening. What happens is we create a soul-level violence that ultimately steals our peace. Why? Francis Schaeffer would say it's because we forget. He says the beginning of men's rebellion against God was and is the lack of a thankful heart. When we forget who we are and who God is, we find ourselves in rebellion. We forget that biblical response to trial is ultimate to, to look at Jesus and to find thankfulness in what he's done for us. We forget, we forget what scripture lays out for us. And so, biblically, our response to trial should be looking at the trial of Christ. should be looking at his motive. The motive is Jesus to save us, to know us, to show us his love. His method was to give his life that we might live. His mission was to reconcile man and God and return us to the wholeness that we were created for. 
to bring peace. So like the letter to Hebrews says, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, then we can reject rebellion. If we can keep our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith, we reject rebellion. And we resolve together to, instead of be rebellious revolutionaries against the kingdom of God, we become counterinsurgency. We become revolutionaries that are working towards God's mission against this culture that is so against him. It's the invitation to join in Christ's work here and now. So that we have the motive of Christ here. So all built into our mission statement is this very thing. What's our motive to being a church outwardly facing, activated towards seeing people come to Christ? We want to see our friends and neighbors know the unmatched love of God. That's our motive. That's why we're putting a dance on. What's our method? Our method is the hard part, really. It's to give up our lives, to give up our agendas, to give up our priorities and kind of collectivize so that we can see our friends and neighbors set free, so we can see our relatives set free, so we can see those who are lost become found. And so we give up our own agenda. And we have the same mission as Christ because to, to know Jesus and make him known is to seek the reconciliation of God and man and to seek peace in others. So I'm going to invite the band to come back up as I ask a few questions. What do we do with this one? The other ones are pretty straightforward. How do I work through struggle? Some practical things. Here's how I go through it. Here's how I see the world. How do I find endurance? Well, you look at the world this way, and endurance is there to be found. Today is a little bit more introspective, because most people won't be able to see rebellion on the level that we experience it. So the question for us is, where there is rebellion in our lives, where does it start? Do you stumble over motives? Do you question God's methods? Does your mission reveal self as Savior? Do you have unresolved relationships with others, with God? Where can you identify places where your agenda has been elevated over God's agenda, where you've hijacked God's glory in hopes of keeping it for yourself? When you're looking for that one, where are the areas of your life that you lack, like sincerely, profoundly lack peace? And if you can find those areas, I bet you can trace that route. Challenge today is to answer those questions and to mind the gaps that you find along the way. Not to simply acknowledge what we see in ourselves, in our community, but to address it. If you need help, prayer, healing, hope, it's there to be found. Our elders are always here, willing to pray, willing to walk through it. Grab somebody after the service, grab this person sitting next to you and be like, will you pray with me? If you need true peace and you've never known it, clearly as I can say it, Jesus died for you. That soul level lack of peace that we feel is a result of the fall of sin and rebellion, which was the very thing that Jesus came to make right again. He paid the price for our rebellion 
and our death dies in Jesus. Our death dies on the cross. Then he rose from the dead and he offers true and eternal life. And so our life then is found in Christ. The door to that life, to that salvation is faith, which is as simple as opening our hands during one of these songs and going, I need peace. And I believe that you sent Jesus to send it. I believe you sent Jesus to bring it to me and I need it. That's the beginning. What we're going to do as a community is take a communion. As we process through rebellion in our own hearts, as we think through the kind of heaviness of the introspection, our challenge is to be reminded that Jesus invited us into a rhythm he said would be light. That if we would cast it on him, that he would carry the weight and we could walk in a lightness of being in an eternal rhythm with him. And did that through his suffering and his death and his resurrection. So when we pick up the bread and we dip it in the cup, we remember he gave his body and he shed his blood so that we would know hope and truth and ultimately we would know peace. So during the course of the next three songs, your invitation is if you are a follower of Christ and you need to be reminded, you need that remembrance and that joy brought back that you would make your way to the table and you would again feel thankful knowing that thankfulness is the beginning of overcoming the rebellion that is a constant battle in our lives. We are a community that exists to know Jesus and make him known. As Calvin said, no man can know God without knowing himself. So know yourself today. Become aware, and then together as a community, we'll move forward as we address what's in front of us.